This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon and welcome to the University of California, San Diego, JFIT Japan Forum webinar series. Uh, my name is Taka Kiyoizumi, Executive Manager of Japan Forum for Innovation and Technology, or JFIT. Uh, prior to joining JFIT, I have been an executive in the pharmaceutical industry, and I have background in medicine and the business. Um, we at JFIT host uh, four webinar series on COVID-19 in Japan. Uh, following last week's uh, webinar on politics and society, our topic today is on public health and the medical systems. Uh, before I uh, introduce today's speakers, Mr. Ryoji Noritake and Professor Douglas Zidonis, allow me to take a few um, moments uh, to uh, introduce as to where you are. Uh, you are at the University of California, San Diego, at the School of Global Policy and Strategy, or GPS, uh, where we offer seven degree programs, including Masters of International Affairs, Masters of Public Policy, and PhD. At GPS, we have a Japan Center called JFIT, uh, Japan Forum for Innovation and Technology, uh, there, too, are several mid-career executive programs, and I'd like to bring the attention to three of them. Uh, first one is JUMP. Uh, JUMP stands for Josei, that's a Japanese word for women, uh, for upper management program, uh, AIM, or Advanced Innovation Management program, and Global Talent program. Uh, for more information, please visit our website, uh, jfitucsd.org. EDU. Uh, as I mentioned, we host COVID-19 in Japan webinar series, and these webinars are also uploaded uh, to YouTube for your viewing later. Uh, we will be discussing the changing workplace and human resource management next week, and the economy on May 19th. Um, as for the housekeeping matter, uh, please feel free to type in your questions using the Q&A function. Uh, I will follow up with them during the discussion. Uh, to start off uh, today's session, I'd like to take a moment to go over some of the challenges uh, we are facing today. Uh, with COVID-19 pandemic, uh, three of the most critical wellnesses in our lives have been significantly impacted. Uh, they are physical wellness, emotional wellness, and financial wellness. Uh, today, we will discuss the challenges for public health and medical system. So we will focus on the first two wellnesses. Uh, in order to mitigate the infection, uh, behavioral modifications such as social distancing hand washing and wearing masks are the four most important countermeasures against the COVID-19, uh, especially currently without any vaccination or vaccines available. 
The challenge is how to increase society's compliance with these behavior modification measures. Uh, also, uh, accurate and fast diagnostic methods are needed to identify the COVID-19 patients and appropriate, appropriately quarantine and triage them. Uh, however, so far, each country has a different public health policy or philosophy on diagnostic testing, and there is no agreement on the optimal practice yet. Uh, it is also critical to maintain medical systems to have enough capacity and the capabilities to cope with patient surge. Also, healthcare uh, frontline needs to have access to all the necessary supplies and equipment, including PPEs and ventilators. Uh, in addition, the big challenge from the public health point of view is that we are so focused on COVID-19. Uh, however, we need to keep close attention to non-COVID-19 patient care simultaneously. Uh, to maintain social distancing in medical practice, uh, use of telehealth, telemedicine, uh, digital health technologies uh, have become uh, necessary. And there is a challenge how we adapt these technologies and adjust the clinical practice without affecting the patient care quality. Uh, developing therapeutics. Uh, good news is that an antiviral drug uh, called Remdesivir uh, received emergency use authorization by FDA last week. Uh, we hear Japan is approving uh, Remdesivir uh, tomorrow. Uh, it is imminent approval coming. And also, uh, however, this is a good news, but uh, we need more therapeutic agents and the urgent, uh, it is urgent matter. Uh, the vaccine development, sorry. Vaccine development is the foremost important for COVID-19 mitigation. Uh, vaccines usually take 12 to 18 months to be developed. And so practically speaking, uh, the e earliest availability of first vaccine would be this winter. Uh, so we are still need to be very vigilant uh, in terms of uh, social distancing. Now the physical witness has a plenty of challenges and also uh, there are many challenges in maintain, maintaining emotional wellness uh, under COVID in pandemic. Uh, for healthcare workers, uh, due to unpredictability of the huge patient load and the sudden changes of condition or severity of the patients. Uh, also fear of infection themselves at the workplace. Uh, the stress level and the burnout rate seems to be escalating. Uh, of course, frustration, anxiety, desperation are looming in the society as we recently witnessed many protests demanding to uh, reopen businesses and the people started going out to beaches. Uh, fear of job losses, unemployment, school closure, childcare, 
And elderly care needs, for example, are some of the major family issues as well. And, uh, you know, we emphasize social distancing, but that does not mean social isolation. So this, uh, this matter needs to be very clearly addressed as well. So having said that, we have uh, so many challenges and our plate is very full. Uh, now I would like to introduce uh, two speakers today. Uh, they may help us figure out what we could do to manage these challenges. Uh, first speaker is Mr. Ryoji Noritake, uh, CEO and board member of Health and Global Policy, Policy Institute or HGPI. Uh, HGPI is an independent, non-profit public health and public policy think tank located in Tokyo. Uh, he's also a consultant to Project HOPE in the Asia Pacific region. Uh, as you may know, Project HOPE is a global health and humanitarian relief organization based in Washington, DC. Uh, actually, I met Ryoji in Japan in 2011 when I was a physician volunteer for Project Hope at the time of the Tohoku or uh, East Japan earthquake and the tsunami. Uh, he was the head of logistics there and we worked together uh, through a medical and a public health crisis uh, under healthcare worker shortage and the burnout environment. And the second speaker is Professor Douglas Zidonis. Uh, he is an Associate Vice Chancellor for Health Sciences at the UC San Diego. And also he is a board certified psychiatrist and a public health expert. Uh, without further ado, I would like to invite Ryoji to speak. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Good evening. Good morning from Tokyo. Uh, this is Ryoji Noritake, uh, CEO for Health and Global Policy Institute. Thank you very much for the kind of introduction, and uh, I'm honored and humbled to be here. Um, to skip the introduction, because I only have 15 minutes, um, let me share the fact, uh, situational fact that Japan is facing now, and uh, my uh, personal thoughts on that. Um, so as of yesterday, uh, number of COVID-19 patients in Japan is about 15,000, and total number of deaths is 553. 8% of checked population is positive. But we have to be very careful with these figures. Firstly, number of PCR checking is quite low in this country compared to other nations. Therefore, actual number of patients should be uh, sort of a hidden and should be much more. Uh, ratio of PCR checking in Japan is 188 checkings per 100,000 people. On the other hand, in Germany, 3,000 checkings per 100,000. In Korea, about 1,200. So we have super low uh, number of PCR checking, which means not only we have more potential patients, but also the percentage of infection is still unknown. I mentioned 8% of 
check population is positive, but it's still unknown. Although one thing we can perhaps rely on is the number of death number, uh, 553 so far. It is still low compared to European nations and of course, United States. So the question is why and how? What is going on in the mysterious country in Far East? And that's always the question about Japan. Um, simply um, and scientifically honest answer from me is we don't know yet. We know that we don't know. And I think that's sort of common sense about COVID-19 so far. Uh, there are many hypotheses, although uh, around the world now, some mentions uh, these days that the type of COVID virus spreading in Asia might be different from the one in Europe or United States. Some guesses that uh, BCG pneumonia vaccination might affect. Some relates with cultural norms. Uh, for example, Japan, Japanese lab wearing masks even before COVID. There's actually a very interesting anthropological book about that. Um, or higher standard of sanitization in Japan or uh, taking off shoes in home, or simply uh, Japanese elderlies, uh, like 85 years old, for example, in Japan, would not do cheap kissing greetings, unlike Italians, let's say. Well, I don't think any 80 years old Japanese do cheap kissing, kissing actually, you know, in, in their lives. They might do, they might die with a heart attack from that, actually. <laughs> okay, that's, that's not a very good joke, but some actually suggest, um, Cluster blaster policy worked and regional public health centers have been working so hard to control the spread of disease. And I, I personally agree with that. But obviously we are in different phase now from cluster uh, control policy to tackling down the community acquired infection. So at least we are in the different uh, phase. So what, what we should do is the question now. But anyways, again, many hypotheses we are encountering with now, but the bottom line is we are still at the phase to say correlations does not imply causation. So having said that, I would like to put my personal observation, this is very personal, not scientifically proven yet, but uh, uh, the, and, and it calls for some policy changes here. Firstly, um, proven concept of social determinants of health personal health relates with social and economic status or social capital. Poverty creates health outcomes. In comparison to the United States, I think Japan is embracing national health system and the relatively larger middle-class or economically egalitarian nation and access to healthcare and is, is still uh, much better. So, um, access to healthcare and I would say health literacy actually do matter, does matter when it comes to uh, uh, infectious disease control, like this pandemic. Secondly, uh, COVID-19 um, kills those who with chronic disease conditions, including obesity. And obesity ratio in Japan is about 4%, whereas United States is 30%. Sadly, even in Japan, 
um, healthcare facilities are in the challenging situation, as just Taka mentioned. Uh, health professionals are working sleeplessly in this country as well, at ICU or inpatient units. And I think there will be a, a future need, indeed, for share for mental health, healthcare for them, as, as again, as Taka mentioned. So one policy change we need, and, and it is happening now, is actually that we should discharge mildly, mildly ill patients from hospitals to hotels or accommodations or so. And this is happening now. Since the COVID-19 has been registered as a designated infectious disease in Japan, so which basically means that every hospital or every healthcare facilities um, obligated to report the disease and obligated to have the patients in, in patients. So that um, the hospital's bed has been occupied by even with mildly ill patients and that causes extra burden to healthcare professionals. Um, so therefore, I would say that um, as discharging those mild ill patients to uh, hotels, it, that which actually is happening now in Tokyo and some other regions. And I think that's a very uh, um, uh, right way to move forward, to decrease at least the burden of healthcare professionals. And finally, um, uh, as again, Taka mentioned, we definitely will see more deregulation in the area of telemedicine. Japan is uh, actually uh, uh, interesting, in an interesting position in terms of uh, hospital visit. Among OECD countries, we have much, much higher visits to the hospitals. And that's the one reason is that we have easy access to hospitals and healthcare. But still, that concept or cultural norm toward hospital is quite different in Japan. That Japanese people think that hospital is safe place, clean place, uh, and somewhere to visit. There's one joke in Japan, actually, about elderly population in Japan, that almost every day those people go to the hospital or clinics uh, to chat with other elderlies. And there's a joke that, um, hey, let's say, well, John is not here today, uh, like 80 years old person talking to each other. Hey, John is not here today in the hospital. Why? What's wrong with him? And maybe he's sick. Well, that's that's kind of actually the uh, kind of the situation in Japan, that how people love to go to hospitals. But that kind of notion, cultural norm, would radically change in the future and radically change the um, reimbursement model or income model for clinicians. So I would say that uh, telemedicine would be more spread out in Japan and the healthcare system, provision system and the health policy would follow. Um, so I mentioned my uh, personal thoughts on, on COVID-19, but the, the, the bottom line I would like to emphasize is the issue that we are facing around the world uh, including Japan, including the United States, is not about virus itself. It's not about virus per se, but I would say it's about society. How we should design better health system, how we should create a um, healthier community, how we can promote health, um, how we can promote precision medicine, and how we 
create inclusive society, uh, how we embrace the uh, social inclusiveness. And, and I think that's the bottom line that we need to talk about um, more than um, acute care, more than policy change, but societal change that we need to uh, face. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ryoji. Very, very interesting insight. Uh, I, I remember, you know, patients or in general, uh, the access to the medical facility or healthcare are very uh, easy in Japan. Now it's getting slightly difficult making appointment for a specific visit. And um, uh, I'm sure healthcare or healthcare uh, hospitals are starting starting to kind of triaging the patient so that they can utilize the best resources for the most sick, the sickest patients. And I uh, uh, would like to discuss a little more in the later session. Um, then <clears throat> I would like to introduce uh, Professor Doug Zidonis uh, to uh, kind of give us an insight what's going on in the US. Uh, especially uh, San Diego County, and uh, if there's anything we should learn uh, to cope with this COVID-19 situation. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you very much. It's an honor also to be here with you all. Uh, last year, I had the opportunity to visit Japan twice, and uh, terrific visits. So grateful to be able to be with you. In contrast to the numbers we just heard about Japan, uh, the, right off the numbers for today, 21,000 new cases were identified today in the US. We are now up to 1.23 million cases with 164,000 people who've recovered and about 72,000 who have died. Uh, it's highly variable in where you live. I have a son who lives in Manhattan in New York City and works there. And that's a hotbed and it brings anxiety for a parent who is far away. I have a daughter who lives in Los Angeles and works in an ICU and a COVID ICU, so she's very close. So Los Angeles also has different dynamics than San Diego. In San Diego, we have a couple of hotbeds. Our southern area that borders Mexico, uh, Tijuana has had a dramatic increase in cases that's making it look like it's moving towards New York City. And also we have a, a couple places where there are uh, elderly in uh, supported housing uh, environments that also have a high rate. Uh, so um, I'm gonna share some slides, uh, if I could, but I might not be able to. Do you know if I can uh, talk, talk a share? I might need your permission. Should be, should be able to, let's see. You have to give me permission. Yeah. If you can't, then we won't go that way. Um, share. Oh, okay. Uh, now you should be able to share. Ah, yes, thank you. Thank you. All right, sorry for the door. 
Thank you. So um, my email's on the bottom if any of you would like to connect at another time, So realities of today from the emotional side, which I'm having more in this formal presentation, is there's a lot of stress, a lot of fear, confusion, uncertainty, and even grief. Sometimes the grief might sound small, like somebody won't be able to go to a graduation or have a as well as people dying and not being able to be near them during the so there are really two populations that we're working at at UCSD that probably mirror everybody's situation. We've got some frontline workers, clinicians with compassion and caring like my daughter without fear, just going in and doing good work. We have people like the janitor or the housekeeping or uh, police who are equally at risk in high-risk situations. And then many people, because of physical distancing, and I use that word physical distancing, because we really don't want to socially distance from one another. Uh, but that physical distance, whether it's through your PPE mask, not being able to see things or physically being near each other, uh, that's really created this sense of isolation and loneliness. And people also interpret it differently. Some people are like, good, I have some alone time. Others are like, oh, nobody loves me anymore. Uh, do I, am I cared about and feel really isolated? Uh, there's also, we see for those particularly who are at work, some inner conflict about being at work or being at home, or if you're in both places at the same time, it seems like all seven days are blurring and people aren't having separation. We also, for those who are on the front line, there's a lot of fear going back home and maybe infecting loved ones. Uh, even on my own teams, we've had people who've died. We've had people who became uh, COVID positive and made it through. Uh, and the uh, afterward trauma also of having been on a ventilator for four or five weeks like some of our staff. Uh, there's also interestingly guilt about people who aren't on the front line knowing that they have uh, other protections. But in addition to that, in a positive way, we're seeing altruism, people reconnecting. And also, it's not just being the best basketball player in America. You can be the frontline worker, and you're being honored today. So what are people wanting? Well, we're getting a lot of requests for both formal and informal emotional support, which has guided our programs. Isaac and Judy Davidson and Tim McDonald are uh, helped me both with these slides, but also with the programs that we're doing on our peer support program, which I'll talk a little bit about. It has actually provided an opportunity for people to be okay with having emotional stress where they might help each other. Uh, we've built in debriefing teams for when people are, are positive, COVID positive, or when a new uh, issue arises. Uh, sometimes it's stressful, so people aren't at their best. Uh, even though we've seen people at their wonderful best in the same context. Uh, some worry about their own health status and you have to decide, are we gonna let uh, there be rules around who doesn't have to work in these high risk situations? What if you're a physician who's 70 and has some health problems? Uh, will you be able to not work in those settings? Uh, these are all complex questions that come up for us. Um, people wanna, figure out how can I communicate with my family and uh, patients. 
we also hear communication is a big thing. We've been working with the International Red Cross to get some ideas of what they do when big crises occur. They said the biggest two things are communication, having clear plans, trustworthy information, timely information, clear information. Uh, people want their leaders to provide that. The second is emotional support, the Red Cross says is their second biggest issue. They have programs, the CALMS program, uh, and lots of materials that we've been benefiting from. Uh, but how do we all support each other on the team? We've come up with a number of different levels of support that I'm going to cover briefly for frontline workers and workers at home. Things that could easily be replicated in Japan are for those of my colleagues who are in the San Diego area, I'd love to tell you more about it at another time. Uh, we have had a peer support program for emotional needs, but it didn't explode. Like we now have 300 of our faculty and staff who are learning the peer support program and getting a abbreviated curriculum. We do trainings where we go into department service lines. Uh, we, we did a training for our emergency medicine department, for our critical care units, our ICUs, even our pathology unit. We've worked with uh, teams that are at home uh, who might have children and it's a difficult, more difficult to do their work. We've created interpersonal emotional first aid to come to help for people, including hotlines in addition to lots of weekly ongoing activities. So this is an example of the different tiers that we're working on. So, uh, some are expedited referral. Our HERE program has gotten a lot of national recognition for where we do suicide assessments. Physicians have high risk for suicide. And only two weeks ago, there was a big uh, uh, suicide noted of an emergency medicine department's lead doctor she committed suicide. And that had a lot of ripples with other clinicians as far as the potential uh, effect uh, for them and what they worried about, both for their risks uh, and uh, other factors. Uh, so this is some of the group that's working with us in these different tier levels and our trained peer supporters are those who aren't professional but are providing this emotional first aid. Um, each department also has initiatives going on, and we now have wellness directors in each of the de uh, departments with different initiatives. So for example, in anesthesia, they decided to have a texting program. So there was at least one little contact every day where a group of five of the anesthesiologists sent a text to everybody to say, hey, what's up? What's going on? Thanks for what you're doing. Any way we could be helpful. And even small gestures like that are making big differences for how people are feeling supported and connected. Uh, so, you know, these are masks of, of this is the reality of what we're seeing. And so how do we improve our empathic and compassionate communication training, which is needed at any time, but especially in the time right now. So these are just a few of the high level. We have a whole course on it, so I'm not going to cover it in a lot of detail, but how do you comfort someone? How do you really listen deeply and be present with them? Uh, and provide some help in a practical way. And also attend to the emotional needs. I was in a meeting last week with psychiatry's telehealth team that's calling on the phone people at home. And time was about the practical aspects of switching to Zoom and using telemental health. And the other half was around the stress they were going through in, as people. Uh, these are just 
if you were local, these would matter, but these are just examples of the kind of very specific programs and what are the triggers for getting a referral to one of these uh, concerns of self-harm or ruminating impairment, uh, just noticing people to be different. So this is one of the programs we're proud of. We have the, uh, I'm also the executive director for our Center for Mindfulness. And we also recently, last year, received a $100 million gift for the UCSD Sanford Institute for Empathy and Compassion, which has a lot of research to study compassion mindfulness. So right now, anybody could go to that website, uh, the UCSD Mindful Compassion, and we have five times a day live Zoom meetings you could join. We have anywhere from 10 to 75 people who join each session to have a stress reduction, mindful or compassion oriented activity. Uh, we also have pre-recorded uh, sessions for people at any time if they can make it. Uh, in addition to that, we actually reach out to any department and provide specialized for whatever their needs are. I've been working with students, with the residents who are after their medical school uh, meeting with the internal medicine group. Sometimes we're just listening for people to ventilate, talk what's going on, what's going well, what's not going well, what could the big system do for helping. Sometimes it's specific skill-based uh, helping them learn mindfulness. Some of them are now doing a mindfulness practice they never did before. And how do you do it both in a formal and informal way? We're now actually studying a lot of these different peer support because we want to see the evidence and um, uh, so we have a lot of research actually going on also here at UCSD, uh, people using their creative energy in this crisis time. So probably most of you know what mindfulness is, that awareness that emerges through paying attention in the present moment. Uh, and, but that could be a course by itself. This is some of the kind of research we do on showing how the frontal cortex can control the amygdala. That's that active part of the brain that deals with anger and fight and flight and freeze. If there's a saber tiger in the room, you better have some part of your brain that tells you something to do. But if that's just at, you know, our normal day life now, we don't need to have that hyper reaction. And the default no, no mode network when you're basically doing nothing, uh, well, we're never doing nothing. And our brain's always oscillating. About half the time, we're paying attention. So even in my talk, if I did a really good talk, you've heard about half of it without your mind drifting somewhere else. So another angle that we've helped that physicians are seeing is we've been uh, also framing it through as a leadership program, leadership in crisis and COVID. And these are some of the aspects. Uh, Janice Martirona, who's a great book on finding the space to lead and uh, when you're feeling overworked and overwhelmed, some strategies. So again, we could talk more another time. These are two handouts that we have available on our website uh, where all the um, live and recorded sessions are. But these are some examples of mindfulness practices that clinicians use because we want very simple, practical things they could do. Here's a second example. And we found that the clinicians find this helpful, particularly because they don't have to do anything else. And it's uh, ways to strengthen that mu muscle of, uh, of resiliency and awareness. So these are, for example, things we ask people, they might focus on their breath awareness. Maybe a guided meditation would help them. What might be some small things they could do to help them in a day? Uh, we have a lot more information on this. And then how would you help a mindful way? Part of it's just the way you listen to one another. Sometimes it could be the experiences you had and what's helped you. 
even like when you notice your mind's going too fast, can you stop and take a deep breath and notice? Even what could be a pain in the neck of washing your hands could be a, a moment of self-soothing. And my wife tells me how the, just lotioning our hands can be therapeutic. And that's an example of where you've reframed uh, something uh, that we do uh, need to do. But again, these are just examples. And then we also have other uh, sessions that they can do. So stop my shit. Uh, thank you very much, Doug. It's it's very insightful, and uh, I, I, you know, I believe these are all applicable to, you know, society in general. Uh, you know, COVID nineteen is basically stressing out. You know, in general, it's uh, it's uh, of course the healthcare uh, frontline workers. Uh, you know, super high risk <clears throat> work environment, <clears throat> and uh, the problem or challenge of this pandemic is we can, nobody can tell, you know, this will end, you know, uh, November, December, or it, it will end in, in a month. You know, that's, that's a, a, another stress uh, on, on the people. And uh, communications, yes, we, you know, we, we need to get uh, appropriate information so we can set certain expectations so we can cope with it. That's another uh, important, you know, the takeaway message we hear from Doug. Uh, do, do Doug or Ryoji have questions to each other? I, I just personally found it very uh, interesting, Ryoji, what you're doing and, and the kind of work you're doing. And also just knowing that you helped uh, develop the uh, School of uh, Innovation. Uh, so I, I am curious uh, how Japan has been thinking about emotional support and whether you're uh, addressing it maybe in some other ways we can learn from. Well, thank you very much. Uh, well, mental health definitely uh, needs to be improved here, the mental health policy and the provision of mental health care. So the COVID-19 is actually an uh, opportunity for Japan to have better mental health provisions and it would be great to have uh, global collaborations uh, on that. So uh, uh, I definitely will see the uh, uh, UCSD Japan collaboration in the future and very happy to promote that. Thank you. Um, I have a, a question from the audience <clears throat> to Ryoji. As you mentioned uh, in Japan, uh, pretty much the medical payment is fee-for-service type. Uh, the government sets certain reimbursement to physicians, healthcare, you know, hospitals and uh, doctors, providers, and they receive the payment through insurance, but it's kind of fee-for-service, right? So you, if you see more patients, you get more income. And, um, under you know COVID pandemic, you know the hospitals want to triage the patient. You know if you are not really sick, you know to get the blood pressure checked, you you don't want them to be in the hospital or clinic. You know of course you know people started not going there uh, because of the, the the fear of you know COVID infection. But uh, is that 
something you will see a change in the future. Uh, in the US, uh, so-called the DRG, that's the, probably the older word, but the diagnostics related uh, pricing, so, so to speak. You know, how many times you go to doctors, it doesn't matter, you know, it, it depends on how, what the disease. Do you think it's gonna change in Japan? Yes. Uh, well, firstly, thank you for the question. And firstly, the, in terms of, it's a little bit technicality uh, in terms of health policy, but DRG type system has been improved in, has been introduced in Japan already. We call DPC. And for uh, certain uh, uh, hospitals, which has certain number of beds, the DPC has been introduced. So it's, it's outcome-based uh, um, uh, approach for, in terms of uh, payment. Um, but on the same time, as you mentioned, that uh, uh, um, that would be increase of performance-based uh, payment for sure with this uh, challenge of, of pandemic. But the bottom line is to do that. Um, that it's it relates with a question to the um, audience. But the bottom line is that uh, to do that, we need to have a better health data system, uh, which we uh, in Japan is actually unfortunately lacking. So uh, we need to have a national health data system. Each individual should have the certain number which connects with the social security number. So that just like ATM uh, or bank account, you can go to the, any hospitals and you can get the health data uh, personally. And that it has not been introduced so that there are uh, duplication of health checkups in Japan duplication of uh, diagnosis, and that efficiency needs to be contributed. Uh, and that, that's actually something we radically and fundamentally needs to implement, implement in this country. Mm, I see. So um, IT, ICT database, uh, the collect collection could be the, could be the next uh, step uh, Japan needs to move forward. And uh, even in the U.S., the ICIT, I, I, ICT technology is relatively advanced in terms of data collection. I still see uh, duplication. You know, you basically the connected health, so to speak, between the hospitals, between hospital groups. If patient moves around, uh, sometimes there are a lot of duplication and the retesting, uh, the re uh, another procedure, and some some patient tend to shop around, and that's one of the be human behaviors, and we need to be aware of and how we can dealt with it, deal with it. You know, Doug, do you have uh, certain you know suggestions how we can collect the data, but uh, not patient misusing the healthcare system? Ah, you muted me. Am I, am I okay now? Uh, okay, great. Um, uh, no, I, I think uh, we need to get the patients involved in designing the project so that the questions that we're asking actually make sense. And uh, I would say that that would be an important first step uh, of what we need to do. I also think a big issue in America is health disparities, which we haven't really talked about. Uh, African-Americans rates of getting the illness and death 
uh, is a very imp important issue in America that I think needs even more discussion. I don't know in Japan whether some of the ethnic group differences uh, are as profound as in the US. Uh, also, people with mental illness and addiction, many of them smoke and uh, smoking can also be a health risk uh, for illness. So, uh, but bottom line to your question, I would say we, we need to get the patients involved in the process. Can I, can I add something? I think, I think it's a very, very important point. Uh, patient inclusion in the health policy design, uh, patient participation, uh, and that, that, that's, that's, I think, for, even for health policy, that's the bottom line, that we are lacked, lack of uh, uh, users' perspective, that every other policies, we include more users, but consumers, but, but the healthcare has been uh, discussed from medical provider's side, and this is the era, uh, and uh, actually COVID-19 um, embraced this change, I would say. That, um, and the question, next question would be, um, it's not about how we provide healthcare, but also the question, how we want to die, each individual citizen. Uh, when, for example, when you got the disease, uh, the, the COVID-19, would you like to be sent to ICU and with the tubes and, and separated from family? And is that how you want to die or different ways? Uh, of course, there's a, a, a protocol of infectious disease control, but also there are certain types of advanced care planning or, or uh, end-of-life planning should be the discussion uh, philosophically uh, and anthropologically and also as, as a human being uh, uh, itself. Yeah, when we started creating, you know, when, the, when COVID was really taking off like the third week, second week of March here in San Diego, immediately ethics teams were being put together because we didn't know if we were going to run into what happened in New York City. But we've been able in San Diego to contain and flatten the curve dramatically. So we've never been tested on those ethical issues as far as uh, making a choice of who could get a ventilator. But you bring up the personal choice, which is a different choice than we have limited resources and who gets the ventilator, which we were worrying we might have as a risk. But it has raised that for sure. And also, some people don't even appreciate how long you might end up being on the ventilator and that potential risk to your cognition and as well as other aspects. We, we, one of our staff's husband was on the ventilator for a month. And we'll see how the, the impact is. He seems to be okay, but uh, definitely uh, un unanticipated uh, risks and, uh, and ethical questions. Yeah, and, and one of the challenges for COVID uh, infection case is you know, it's it's not uh, necessarily terminal illness. You know, as Ryoji says, how you know you need, need to decide how to die, but uh, you know, so many unknowns, and uh, who will become so sick, so require ventilator, and uh, who would survive after ventilator and the food would unfortunately pass away, we, we don't have enough data to determine. So what at this moment is uh, all the physicians basically spending all the resources to save you know, one life at a time. And uh, you know, public health point of view, 
it's it's very hard because the, all the resources need to be, you know, put into the the care of the each one one of you know, one patient at a time. But we are kind of acute stage of handling pandemic, and at acute stage, you know, it's unfortunate we have to take everything at one patient to save, and uh, you know, one at a time. Then we will learn how best we can treat the patient. So right now we don't have a much tool. Remdesivir may be the first tool, but uh, we are, you know, we are still depending on ventilator, ICU care, uh, respiratory care. So the situation will probably evolve as we know the the pathophysiology uh, of the of the disease. But uh, at this moment, I think you know we are really acute phase of tackling <clears throat> this disease, so that you know we we need to kind of have to do our best. No, you know from that accumulated knowledge in the past. Uh, that's that's my personal opinion. But uh, we, you know, we we will definitely move into chronic phase of a pandemic, and eventually we will we will have vaccination and we hope that they will come as soon as possible. So right now, acute phase, we are doing our best for everything, kind of uh, adrenaline surge, adrenaline surge stage of the society. Now, uh, three, four months, five months into it, we will become a chronic phase to cope with this disease. What, what do you think the change may come and what, uh, from a public health point of view, we need to be uh, careful or aware of it? If, uh... Well, I think in the U.S. we're right at the beginning of that question. Uh, we've somewhat flattened the curve uh, in some places very aggressively. Even New York City cases are starting to go down. But now we see people getting anxious about finances, uh, anxious about staying in their home. So I think we're going to see variability in how people stick with physical distancing and wearing masks. So we will have, sadly, the social experiment, the public health experiment, that will uh, play out in front of us. And different states and different communities are handling it more aggressively or not aggressively. And again, I think this goes into health disparities where certain neighborhoods are realizing that they're going to have to uh, have stricter rules to make it through because they have a higher risk. But I think this is an experiment. Like in San Diego, the public health announcement of the three T's of testing, tracing, and tracking are guiding the San Diego County process. So you know, we're fortunate to have a strong public health uh, system here and reasonable amount of resources, but that's not true of everywhere in the U.S. And even in San Diego County, it varies. The Native American community has been at particularly high risk uh, and not having resources in many states, not just San Diego. So uh, I think we're in a social experiment phase right now and we're going to see over the next two, three months uh, what different risks result in. Just, just a very uh, quick question, a uh, quick, quick comment. That, um, 
it's very, I think it's a very ethical question. And as, as Doug mentioned uh, perfectly, this is social experimental phase. Uh, Sweden, for example, uh, they are taking the art immunity concept policy or collective immunity po concept policy, which is uh, indeed experimental. And the death ratio is higher than other Scandinavian countries. But in talking about 20 years, 30 years time frame, we don't know what the result would be. Uh, Japan is not taking the uh, uh, intentional art immunity concept policy, but our lockdown policy is quite loose. I can see people walking around the streets and, and, and kids are playing around in the, in the, in the garden. Um, so that's that's very experimental phase. And also it's ethical question too, like how we should limit the rights of younger generations uh, to save elderies. It's a generational um, sort of a um, uh, discourse that we need to 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 have. That um, eighteen years old teenager who wants to be a professional baseball player, their summer of twenty twenty is just this time. How shall we keep how we can enforce them to be staying home? Is to save lives. And what the definition of life here? Um, so I think it's um, we, I it's a, I'm really concerned about actually the over medicalization of the COVID nineteen. Uh, society is bigger and human being activity is a little bit larger than medicalization. Uh, but again, we are in the acute phase. I truly appreciate the medical providers, healthcare providers' efforts, but long term we need to discuss uh, ethically uh, and philosophically. I think that's such an important thing. Even someone who works in medical, it's really, I, I think public health is gonna be so important. And then looking at social strata and social issues, you're really very important. There was a, a wonderful comment in our Q&A by uh, someone uh, that in the Q&A box who raise the issue of what's the new life, new style of life going to be? And of course, we would have to be a prophet to figure that out uh, accurately. But I do think it's really a great question from our audience. So thank you, whoever sent that. Uh, um, and, you know, as I reflect on that, I think uh, a lot of our social norms in America, hugging and shaking hands and, you uh, going to baseball games and uh, going to uh, uh, musical concerts is going to be affected in the this year. And I think it's going to have a big effect on travel. It'll affect unemployment and all the ripples from that in people's housing. Uh, so it's really uh, hard to imagine it. I mean, in some ways that my parents lived through World War II and they lost their home and left Latvia and went to America. I, I almost feel like in a weird way that, and I know it's not equal at all, but just that, you know, th things are getting stirred up and depending on how wealthy or poor you are, you could be like Latvia where it's really, you don't have a home and other risks are happening. So uh, I, I do think it will be a new way of life, at least until the vaccine comes and we can, uh, but there'll probably be changes forever like any big crisis. Uh, hopefully telehealth sticks around and insurance companies in the U.S. pay for it the same way because 
there are some good things that have been coming out of this. Well, thank you. Thank you both, both uh, the panelists. Uh, for the benefit of time, we are needed, we need to conclude our session soon. Uh, on behalf of all the audience, I sincerely appreciate uh, your kind of participation. Uh, as, a as a physician and I worked for a pharmaceutical company, I'm quite hopeful the vaccine will be developed uh, year time and uh, we go back to the society where we were uh, a few years ago. And uh, with that, uh, let me uh, just share uh, the preview of next week's uh, webinar. Uh, next week, uh, we continue COVID-19 Japan and uh, uh, we shift the focus to the changing workplace and the human resource management. Uh, as I mentioned, the, the financial and uh, the social wellness is uh, you know, another critical matter. And uh, the COVID-19 COVID pandemic somewhat forcing that the way of uh, the workplace and how we work uh, in these uh, circumstances. Uh, so next week, May 12th, uh, at the 4.30, the same time, we will look into these issues. And uh, uh, the speakers, uh, Professor Ulrika Shede, our director of the JFIT, and uh, Mr. Kyota Omori, chairman of Mitsubishi Research Institute, and Ms. Lei Kao, a regional HL manager, uh, Amazon Japan, and Mr. David Richards, managing director and the chief administrative officer uh, from Morgan Stanley MUFG. Uh, thank you very much, and I hope to see you next week, same time, uh, same place. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.